avoiding human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians, cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff, and this week on the Project Censored show, I sit down with Defend Atlanta Forest to discuss the fight happening right now in the Atlanta Forest, which is probably not what you think of when you hear the word Atlanta. But it's a powerful fight that sees the intersections of so many issues, including climate change, the prison industrial complex, propaganda, Hollywood, and more. Later on in the show, Eleanor and I talk about the way corporate media frame environmental issues, the way they ignore the climate crisis or downplay it, or conveniently forget that it's actually one of the most existential crises we face on the planet. So at the end of the program, Eleanor and I will talk about several key environmental stories and underreported environmental stories. Stay with us. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, skies, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured paid for by taxing on the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsed. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. Recently, Eleanor had the opportunity to sit down and talk to the people at Defend the Atlanta Forest. Here is that conversation. Afterwards, Eleanor and I will talk about more censored stories around the environment and climate crisis. A quick note to our listeners about this segment. Forest defenders and other frontline folks are targeted frequently by antagonistic media, contractors and employees of the project in question, and of course, by law enforcement. And sometimes the two latter roles are one and the same. Therefore, it's a common practice to use nicknames and mask appearances. Both for media and supporters, it's vital to respect this anonymity. And for those interested in learning more about frontline media practices, I've done a few trainings on that and I'm glad to share that info. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Coyote to the show. Coyote is a forest defender and a published ecologist. Coyote, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and for offering this platform. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So defend Atlanta forest. A lot of folks, when they hear the word Atlanta, they don't think of a forest. Can you talk first a bit about the lay of the land where you are? Here in Atlanta, we actually call it the city in a forest. And it's kind of got an urban sprawl, like similar to cities like LA, but instead of it all being just like suburbs or desert, there's lots and lots and lots of trees. So a lot of wildlife and a lot of forests in Atlanta. But the forest that we're talking about specifically is a place called the South River Forest. It's the largest urban forest in the United States. It's extremely large. The small parcel that we're mostly inhabiting is 500 acres. And that's what we're trying to prevent from being developed. But there are actually more sections of continuous forest surrounding it that are connected by corridors. So they call the city in the forest and we have an enormous amount of wildlife here. And I want to talk about the intersections of the issue here. Another thing that I see, not just to defend Atlanta forest, but also stop cop city. It's not just about policing. It's also about Hollywood and how those two intersect vis-a-vis the propagandization of the state through Hollywood. Could you give a little snapshot of what that project is that y'all are combating? The Stop Cop City element is basically urban warfare, military police training facility that they want to build, where they'll practice setting off bombs and they have tanks that they want to play with. 
they're going to build a mock city and all kinds of things like that, which is just horrible. And it will affect police, not just in Atlanta, but all across the southeastern United States and possibly the world. But I can go into that later because there's some precedent of that. And then the part of how it mixes into Hollywood is also very interesting because 380 acres is going to Cop City. But the rest of the land that we're on is planning to be turned into a soundstage by this place called Black Hall Studios. And they specifically want to make uh, movies that affirm American values. They want to make action movies, movies with guns, war movies, and these kinds of things on the land. So we imagine that they probably would collaborate with Cop City if they were filming there. Part of the reason why we, we want to combat the building of something like Black Hall is actually because the forest that we're in is surrounded by a lot of poorer neighborhoods and Black neighborhoods. And right now, a lot of Atlanta is being gentrified. Many people are being pushed out. And the construction of something like Black Hall is likely to push these people out of their homes as the area around it gets gentrified. So there's kind of a confluence of issues. There's another group in Atlanta called the Community Movement Builders. They approach it a lot from the perspective of preventing this gentrification and preventing the displacement of the Black people that live in the surrounding area. It's also, this is relevant. It's extremely strange for them to be building this, this police training facility here and to want to be coming here in order to film you know, war movies, considering like what's actually happened on the land. The history of the land is quite dark. It used to be a plantation. After it was a plantation, it was turned into a prison, basically a forced labor camp, a way for them to continue slavery without being able to have slaves. And a lot of horrific things have happened on the land involving state violence against the people. And so turning it into a place where they can escalate and practice that violence and also sort of glorify it and advertise it to people is, is I think, is disturbing to me personally. I appreciate you giving that history because I think that's an important piece too, the, the sort of perpetuation of the oppression of people and the land as well. And I always think it's important to highlight the intersections of not just issues, but also of time. So I think that snapshot is important. And that also speaks to the work that y'all are doing, not just about blocking something, but about talking about healing this land and healing the history of violence. Talking about history, something that I think is really important to mention is that prior to everything with the plantations, the Muscogee nation existed here and the Muscogee people lived here and then were forcibly removed in the Trail of Tears. And back in November, organizers who have been involved in this have been in conversation with the Miko of the Halepi Ceremonial Grounds, which is the Muscogee political unit is a ceremonial grounds. And they came and they did an, an exhibition stomp dance. And it was the first time that Muscogee people had really made like an official trip back to the land. It was very powerful for them to hear them talk about the trees, hearing the Muscogee language after so many years. There are trees on the land that were probably there when Muscogee folks were still there. And so thinking about healing the land in that context is, I think, very important. And, and folks are coming back Earth Day weekend. Thank you for highlighting that. 
And I'm curious in terms of this sort of standoff that's going on, I understand that there have been some confrontations, even though they haven't started construction yet. What have those looked like? We've had some confrontations already. Yeah, that's been kind of intense. We've had bulldozers come in a couple of times. There was a week or a couple of weeks where it was like the workers were coming every single day. They were trying to take soil bores in order to like test the soil to see where they could build and where the soil was packed enough for them to be able to put in foundations, I guess. And they did a lot of illegal stuff. You know, they didn't have the correct permits to cut down as many trees as they were doing. They were just bulldozing through trees. They had helicopters flying over the forest, which is psychologically kind of like frightening because you have this helicopter and you're like looking up and you're wondering if it's looking at you. Thankfully, they couldn't really see us. A few people were detained. And then we built barricades. They dismantled the barricades. We had some people play cat and mouse and confuse them, get them to chase them around and waste their time. The cops got ATVs, started driving around in ATVs around the woods, trying to catch people, which was pretty frightening. And then there was a big confrontation where we did a march. We got a bunch of people together, everyone made signs, and then we marched into this area where the power lines go through, which we call the cut, and marched to where they were doing the soil boring, and four people got arrested and spent the night in jail. They got some pretty intense bruises, and it was intense, but there hasn't been any tear gas confrontations or anything like that. It's mostly been running around in the woods and trying to delay people and building structures in order to delay them. I wanted to talk a little bit about tactics and approaches because it's really been rad to see some of the things that have been posted on y'all's Twitter and Instagram with regards to that. Because with forest defense, I feel like a lot of people think that's people doing tree sits, but there's so much more in terms of tactics, mm-hmm. not to downplay a tree sit, that's, <laughs> that's rad stuff. But it's really been cool to see some of the super creative ways that y'all are approaching this you talked about some of the tactics that you all have used, like using old tires to build blockades and using what's around you as opposed to trying to just fit into an existing framework or understanding of forest defense. There's a lot of examples of forest defense around the world and quite a few that have lasted for a very long time. There's the Hambach forest in Germany, for example, and in the Hambach, there's tons of tree houses. They use ropes to tie their stuff into the treehouse. I think that a lot of what's been going on in the woods, we've been sort of following that mindset. There's a person out there who was one of the first out-of-towners to come out. And she said, I'm going to go to the woods. And like, everyone's like, is there like a structure there? You know, what is our plan? And and they were like, oh, I'm just going to go out and rough it trash witch style. And everyone thought that was really funny. (laughs) And so the first camp was called the Trash Witch Camp. And we still kind of think of ourselves a bit like trash witches. A lot of what we're using are things that are in the woods. We even do a little bit of ecological restoration by using the invasive plants in order to build structures. We have a structure called a bender, which is loosely based on a wigwam. So we don't call it a wigwam because we don't feel like it's a legit wigwam, but it's a bent wooden structure with tarps laid over it. And we made it out of privet, which is a really common invasive plant here. So the whole idea, I think, behind the camp is it's not even focused entirely on combating the police as much as it's about supporting the community and the surrounding community. 
trying to have respect and support for the woods, having a relationship with the woods. And we're doing some ecological restoration stuff in order to improve the conditions in the woods, whether that be the plant life or the soil quality or somewhat strategically. But I'm a little bit nervous to talk about future schemes just because this is going to go out to the public. We have our schemes. I think that some of the fun stuff that police would already know about is that there are a lot of ruins on the land that we're on, ruins of the old prison farm. And so making camps like in those ruins where we just allow the land to decide where we inhabit or using areas that are really overrun with invasive vines like wisteria or kudzu as places to make small camps because they're very well camouflaged. And by the time the spring comes, they're just going to be completely invisible unless you know where they are. It's very jungle-like out there. I love that. It reminds me a little bit of Braiding Sweetgrass, the book by Robin Wall Kimmerer. What you said about like allowing the land to decide and allowing the land to lead you into how you are in relationship with it. Not least of all, like the use of invasive species. That's so brilliant. I absolutely adore that. And it also brings to mind like the importance of building, not just fighting. Because I think a lot of times we just get so caught up with the defend and the protect that we forget or we lose sight of the love aspect, which is really, I feel like the most important part, because how are you going to be moved to defend or protect something that you don't have a, a deep relationship with, that you don't really love? It's so cool to, to see some of the emergent and creative ways that y'all are approaching that as well in terms of having these kind of like eco walks where you, you introduce people to the land and to the water and the species that are part of it that call it home. And trying to rebuild the ecosystem and making humans a part of that as opposed to the outside or the top of this false hierarchy that we've constructed. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. The program will continue after this brief musical break. Stay with us. I really love the book Braiding Sweetgrass, and I think that those ideas have definitely influenced how we're behaving out in the woods. There's definitely a spiritual component to being out there. It almost sounds silly to say, but it's very powerful to spend a lot of time out there because it's very beautiful and it kind of draws you in. A lot of strange things happen to people in the forest or around the forest or having to do with the forest that make people feel there's something crazy going on here. The idea of doing restoration projects in there, we're just going rogue and doing it. We have folks who are really interested in soil science and who are helping us set up berms, holes that you dig that you then fill with compost. 
in order to populate the soil with microorganisms. And there's a lot of foraging that happens out there as well. There's a lot of edible mushrooms and plants and these kinds of things that people go out there and they find. And that's actually part of why it matters to some of the community members, because that's where they go in order to look for those kinds of foods. In braiding sweetgrass, there's that story right at the very beginning about how humans are the younger siblings. And we have a lot to learn from the living things that are around us. Oftentimes, I think people play in spaces where we're concerned about climate change or ecological disaster. We think about humans as kind of an invasive species. This idea that we show up, we're not supposed to be around, we eat everything and we trash everything. And a great way to look at it, I think, or a shift of perspective is to see humans more as a, as a keystone species. That human beings have really been here on this continent for thousands of years, like long enough to form relationships with the organisms. Human beings have been all around the world for thousands of years. And a lot of the activities that we do, a lot of the activities that like indigenous cultures do, those are vitally important for the maintenance of the ecosystem and fill the roles of organisms that might be missing. Controlled burns, for example. Controlled burns help forests and if you're doing it in a prairie landscape, fertilize the soil. If there were bison around, the bison would be doing it for us. But now it's our duty as human beings to like do this in order to maintain the ecosystem. And so if, if we go out into spaces like the forest where we can see how damaged it is, we can make deliberate choices to help with a sense of care and love, and it'll improve over time. And we fulfill, rather than like an invasive species role, this like keystone species role, where we're doing like ecosystem engineering. Kind of like how a beaver builds a dam, and then all these animals rely on the existence of the pond. Like the organisms around us, they rely on us to not be jerks. <laughs> they need humans to have a healthy relationship with the plants and them in order for them to survive. And, and it's a responsibility for us to take part in that as a species, not just for our own sake, but out of just a sense of compassion for the other living things around us. I think it's so important to highlight that because I agree in so many spaces that are concerned with climate chaos, there's this feeling of like a hands-off approach, like let's just get out of nature. And I'm like, but where? If we actually yeah. wanted to do this right, then there would be nowhere to get out of nature from. We would have it's to destroy further in order to extricate ourselves from nature. And even then, nature still bats last. So really reframing that as the problem is the system of hierarchy that we've placed with ourselves at the top and like all of that icky nature below, as opposed to being, as you pointed out, a keystone. The other thing that that really highlights is the ability to defend and engage with nature wherever you are. I mean, people might be listening to this mm -hmm. and thinking, well, I'm not close to Atlanta or that's not something that I could be a part of. But wherever you are, there are spaces and ecosystems that are under threat or at the very least that need to be reclaimed in some way that need to be assisted from previous use and previous destruction. And so I think there's a really powerful point to be made there as well, that there's something that could be done wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this in your home place. Yeah. You don't even have to go out and be like, here's this huge battle that I'm going to fight. There's a couple of apps, you know, there's Seek, 
there's iNaturalist. Go out and find the first plant you see that's right by your door or growing in a crack in the sidewalk and try and figure out what it is. Take a picture. Use an app to identify it. If you can't figure it out or you don't know what it is, keep looking, try and find it out and learn its name. And I guarantee you that if you, once you learn that one, you're going to be walking around and you're going to see it again somewhere else. And you're going to be like, oh, what's it doing there? Some of them might be invasive. Some of them might be introduced. There's a whole group of botanists. They don't dislike invasive species. They call them spontaneous species. And many animals eat invasive species. Maybe the ecology is just changing. You don't have to go on some kind of war path. Just go out, form relationships with the wildlife that are around you, whether they be birds or squirrels or hopefully not rats. But if you want to form relationships with the rats, like power to you <laughs> and try and, and cultivate that and take care of that. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be of use to you for it to matter. That's a problem with a lot of our perspective. It's part of the horror of what happened on the land in the first place. Part of the horror of the plantations, part of the horror of the prison farm. It's part of the horror of the police training facility and these kinds of things. It's about ensuring that everyone is of use, like ensuring that people fit into the larger capitalist system. The little bugs around you did not choose to be born. The plants <laughs> around you did not choose to come into existence. And, and neither did you. You have a fundamental right to life, and so do they. You don't have to prove that you're worth it because you're useful. You have a right to be alive because you just found yourself here. And I think adopting that, bringing yourself into communion with the living things around you, you automatically start to make a difference because you start to care about them. A phrase that a friend of mine said once that I really like is that you can only love those that you are capable of grieving mm. and finding a way to open yourself to that. Passing through grief is a way of passing into love. And we avoid that. With all the climate change stuff, I've definitely had times in my life where I felt like I really can't get out of bed because I'm so depressed. What is the point? And then coming to and going outside and realizing, well, there's all these living things around me and they would be really sad if they all died. That's why I'm so sad about all of this. It's not just about me dying. And then you feel love for that. You want to protect it, you know? And it's forming that kind of personal relationship that then starts to extend outwards into daily life. To defend what you love is so vital. And I've also reminded when you were talking about, you know, just go outside and start building relationships with these ecosystems that you're a part of. I was also reminded of another book, how to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. And it's basically like yeah. how to do nothing from a capitalist perspective, the nothing that is actually living and the nothing that is actually being a part of these places. And she writes about bioregionalism and this idea of being in relationship to wherever you are. And she says it's something she does when she travels too. So it's not just something she does outside of her San Francisco apartment, but something that she actively does wherever she goes. And I, I believe she actually mentions the same apps that you mentioned, but how powerful that is to be in relationship with the ecosystem and as opposed to just seeing it as something that our buildings are built on. I wanted to zoom out here. You'd also mentioned the aspect of how it affects not just 
the U.S., but around the world. Of course, Mm -hmm. the U.S. is well known for a deadly exchange with the IDF and Israeli forces that are used to perpetuate the apartheid over there. And of course, just the aspect of the propagandization that will be part of any kind of Hollywood film. What y'all are not only fighting, but building has repercussions beyond just where you are and how folks could plug into that either physically or at least in terms of being inspired from afar. It is the belief of many, and especially those in the forest here in Atlanta, that the military industrial complex, white supremacy, colonialism, extractive capitalism that's creating the ecological crisis that we are in, that all these things are connected, that these are all manifestations of the same superstructure, which is the hyper-colonial structure that comes out of Europe. That superstructure is about resource extraction. It's about extracting as many resources as possible as quickly and as efficiently as possible over the largest amount of space as possible in order to create a situation where a small group of people have anything and everything they could ever possibly want. And police officers maintain this extractive structure in a myriad of ways that when you actually stop and think about the human costs of the maintenance, you realize that what they're maintaining is the extraction from the very populace that are in the area like they don't protect us they don't protect normal people they protect property which the vast majority of people don't own and they protect the very rich and poverty is criminalized it's true that the police in atlanta and the military in israel did co-trainings with each other they traded you know like police in atlanta showed them how to break into a house or something like that. And then the police in Israel showed them some other strategy, you know, maybe like martial arts or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. Either way, apartheid state, Atlanta police collaborated with each other. And there's another place in Georgia that's not very far away called School of the Americas, which is Mm -hmm. a military training facility. And they trained soldiers from Latin America that participated in the coups of the leftist governments there that instated dictatorships. If Cap City comes into existence, which it won't because we're gonna defend the forest, it won't be just training for Atlanta police. It'll become a destination for police all around Georgia and all around the Southeastern United States. And it may become a place where police from other countries in sort of some kind of diplomatic fashion come and train at this facility. It'll also become a blueprint for other facilities around the United States. If it exists, other places are going to want similar training facilities. And so more will pop up. And the implications of that are terrifying. We already exist in a position where we can't defend ourselves from our own governments, whether that be because of information suppression or because of the fact that like peaceful protest is apparently no longer allowed, considering how much riot gear and tear gas uh, we've seen. And the building of this facility is a direct response to the uprisings that happened after George Floyd, after George Floyd's death. 
and all of the uprisings that happened all around the United States. The fact that they're pushing it through. They've been talking about this facility for 10 years. And only now are they really like, yep, we got to build this. And it's going to train police to be better at those sort of suppression tactics. And it's going to become harder and harder and harder for people to resist. So we have to try and nip it in the bud. That's my perspective. We can't necessarily say that we will win against a structure as large as global capitalism. We can feel hopeless against it, but we have to resist. We're morally obligated to. We can't collapse into despair. We have to go and we have to try and build what we want to see. We have to live as if the future that we hope will be is is the one that is going to come into existence and that we're going to take part in, in that. We need to try and preserve life wherever possible. And it's like cursed. It's like building the house on the ancient Indian burial ground. There's so many people who go out to that land and they are like, it feels like sad here. You know, Mm. it feels like cursed, you know, like there's all these ruins all over the place. The, they have these lakes that they, that were deliberately poisoned with arsenic, you know, Mm. like there's, there's trash all over the place, you know, and you see like, You know, there's a part where there's a place where they buried zoo animals and the remains of Atlanta's first public library, which when they demolished, you know, they left, they took the the stones that lined the front and they left, then they had different authors on them. And the two that are in there are the one are Poe and Virgil, you know, like the, um, and for those who don't know, Virgil is the poet in Dante's Inferno who guides Dante into hell you know like so many people suffered and died on that land or were forcibly removed from that land and they want to build a place where they can practice harming people and then another place where they can glorify doing that it's pretty spooky when you think about it it's kind of like weird death cult stuff from my perspective what's happening in Atlanta is a huge confluence of all of these things. It's about police abolition. It's about decolonization. It's about glorification of warfare. It's about capitalism. It's about climate change, about ecological restoration. And we're showing how in this place, all of these things are so evidently connected. So if you want to get involved, try and do what you can where you are to restore the ecology in your surrounding area plant native plants, plant pollinators, learn about permaculture, learn about the different native species and invasive species that are in your area, learn about who lived on the land before you were there, learn about the history, try and honor that and have respect for that. And also make sure to take care of the community that is around you in the present, the people and the animals and the plants. If you want to come here, come to Atlanta, look for Entrenchment Creek Park, South River Trail, and there's a little parking lot, come in and take a walk around the forest. If you want to come set up, if you have a little group of oogles or punks or just crazy environmentalist people, and you want to come set up your own camp, come set up your own camp. You are very welcome. If you want to join our efforts, we have an email. It's atldtf at riseup.net. So shoot us a little message and come out. And we'd be really happy to have you. We need more people 
We always need more people. That was Eleanor Goldfield's conversation with Defend the Atlanta Forest. After this brief musical break, Eleanor and I are going to discuss the state of the free press vis-a-vis the environment. We're going to talk about several other key issues that the corporate media don't address or distort around environmental issues and the climate crisis. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. Eleanor, we wanted to talk a little bit about the media crisis around the climate crisis, because in addition to the excellent segment that you just did, there are so many other environmental stories that the corporate media don't cover. And we often wonder, is it because it's old news at this point? Is it because people are accepting there's a climate crisis? If people are tired of hearing about environmental issues, the corporate media, of course, Eleanor will say to us that they've covered these issues. That's one of the things that corporate media like to do is they say, well, we covered that. Is, is that still newsworthy? And look, obviously, in, in terms of the climate and the planet on which we live, one would think that that would be almost an emergency level story all the time. I guess we can't tap out the adrenals of the planet population on a daily basis. But they seem to have no problem, the corporate media, you know, following one crisis after another selectively around the globe, whether it's warfare, the pandemic, etc. But Eleanor, the environmental crisis hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, it's seemingly and arguably getting worse by the day. So talk to us a little bit about this. I know you, you've done a lot of work around environmental journalism, environmental activism. So t- talk a little bit about some things that have been on your mind. Yeah, Mickey, I mean, you make you make great points. And uh, actually, Media Matters pointed out, uh, this was last year, I don't actually have the numbers for 2021. But Media Matters pointed out that in 2020, these shows that they that they cover on ABC, CBS, and NBC, and Fox covered climate change for a total of 112 minutes over the course of a year. And that was the lowest amount of coverage since 2016. So I know basically the time it would take me to walk from my apartment to the Lincoln Memorial is longer than corporate media covered climate change in an entire year. And that amount of time is lower than the four previous years. And as you pointed out, Mickey, it's not like climate change has gotten better. It's just that they had other things to focus on that that made more monetary financial sense, right? So it's the bottom line interest. The pandemic and things like that are far more attractive to them to talk about rather than, you know, the impending annihilation of of humanity. And I think with regards to how corporate media covers things, I think another thing that really ties into the Defend Atlanta Forest segment that folks just heard is the intersections of these issues. 
I oftentimes say, and as a journalist, but also as a, a climate activist, that the issue of climate change is not really an issue. It's the stage on which all other issues play out because none of these issues will matter if we're all dead. It's not just that, oh, this is an issue that's being ignored. It's the very core foundation of our ability to survive on this planet that's being ignored. And so the intersections of these issues, climate change intersects, therefore, with all other issues, the, the issues that were brought up in the previous segment, issues of gentrification, systemic racism, the prison industrial complex, of course, warfare. I mean, the corporate media is agog with coverage of war right now, but never seem to mention something like a little tidbit, for instance, that the U.S. military is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet, equal to 140 countries. That little tidbit never gets thrown in there in the evening news segment about war. And the Pentagon is exempt from environmental law and regulation. Right, because, you know, it's just that important that we wage war as a dying empire. We couldn't possibly be restricted with environmental regulations. And, you know, Eleanor, at Project Censored, we've been covering that story for well over a decade you know, I remember we were covering that story. Dar Jamal was covering some of that story. I know he's been recently working on another project. I think Abby Martin was working on another project with him around that very issue for a forthcoming documentary. But what you're saying here, again, in the last several years, it's not like the environmental conditions are improving and they're measurably worse in other places. But we've been covering the fact that the corporate media haven't really been giving this serious enough attention for at least a decade, if not longer, just at Project Censored. Of course, you go back several decades and there have been scientists and activists and people that have been highly alerted to this issue, even when it seemed less visibly a problem. Now it's undeniable. The fact that the corporate media lied and covered up and played both sides, false equivalency with environmental issues and climate crisis, the fact that fossil fuel companies from Exxon to Mobil, Shell, etc., knowingly hid their own studies that showed that their industries were contributing to global warming. They knew that as early as the 1980s, if not earlier than that, and they sat on this, kind of like how the cigarette industry and tobacco industry sat on the problems with their product and their industry, like asbestos, except in this case, like you aptly pointed out, all those other issues play out on the big stage of the environment without a place to live, a habitable planet, none of those things are going to make a difference anyway. So you had a couple of other stories, I know. You were a couple of other things you've been following. Did you want to talk about one or two of those? Recently, there's been a report from scientists, you know, the people that, the favorite group of people to be ignored in the United States. The scientists basically expressed shock and alarm. And this is March 20th, around this time of, of 2022, this year, that basically scientists were incredibly shocked to find that polar temperatures have soared 50 to 90 degrees above normal. So in parts of Antarctica, the temperatures have gone even further than expected. They knew that they were going to be higher, but the fact that they've gone this high is just absolutely unheard of, unthinkable, and as they, as they put in quotations, impossible, absurd, <laughs> and, you know, other synonyms of such exclamations. And in Antarctica, the French-Italian Concordia Research Station recorded an all-time high of 10 degrees Fahrenheit in late March, and high temperatures at the station 
average roughly below minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. That's an enormous jump. I mean, 10 degrees, anybody that's ever been in 10 degree weather knows that's that's mighty cold. So I can hear people saying, hey, that's still really cold. Uh, <laughs> that's That's still below freezing. What you're saying is that that gap is extraordinary. And I think that this is a trend that I'm not happy about seeing, and I know that you have, is that for years scientists keep saying that our predictions were wrong, meaning things are far worse far sooner than we thought. That's like a refrain, you know? I mean, if that was like a record album, they'd, they'd be rolling with it. It's unending. This is a great point to get to is there could be an ending. <laughs> What's happening in the next 20 to 30 years could be so extraordinarily catastrophic. Now, look, we could be staring down nuclear winter. We could accelerate the whole thing with what's going on in Eastern Europe right now, attacking a country with 15 uh, nuclear power plants, a country with nuclear weapons, people glibly talking about short-range nukes and these kind of things. I mean, it's sheer madness. And by the way, the, the doomsday clock, the atomic clock, is now less than two minutes to midnight. That's like, quote-unquote, separate from what we're talking about. Another thing that, that caught my eye last year is, uh, and this was actually picked up in Rolling Stone a couple places, titled, The Fuse Has Been Blown and the Doomsday Glacier is Coming for Us. So keeping in tune with our Doomsday theme here. New data suggests a massive collapse of the ice shelf in as little as five years. One scientist said, we're dealing with an event that no human has ever witnessed. We have no analog for this. So I, I'm bringing this into the picture as a segue from what we just mentioned. And they're talking, of course, about the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. This is, again, an alarming development. These are really straight, sober, scientific analyses, studies, what exactly do you think we should be doing about some of these things, Eleanor, given that you have this activist side and also bringing in the media issue? What will it take for media not to just cover these issues? I mean, here's Rolling Stone covering it, but you get to the end of it and you're just sort of like, I mean, what do we do? Go out in style? I mean, it's hard not to be cynical, but it's also hard to be hopeful. It is. It kind of reminds me of, of a meme that I saw where it shows somebody you know, hitting rewind on a song. It was basically like, it said something like, I, you have to play the song again because the saddest part didn't hit you quite hard enough. And I was like, yeah, that's that, that yes, there've definitely been those days, but this is kind of what that feels like, you know, to continue with the music metaphor here, but also with the, the doomsday metaphor too, I think there's, there's another connection to the war aspect. You know, when World War II happened, when the US entered World War II, which, of course, the U.S. likes to talk about doing that for human rights reasons, which is, of course, totally bogus. The U.S. has never entered a war or started one for human rights reasons. But the entire economy shifted. It shifted to a war economy. And you wouldn't look back and say, oh, that was easy. But it happened. We shifted an entire nation's economy to the war effort. And a lot of environmental activists and organizers talk about doing this for the aspect of climate change. Just like it was done before, it can definitely be done again to address this horrific reality that we are already facing. And I think it's important to also point out that it's not climate change is that thing that will happen. We're losing football fields of Louisiana every day. And that's already like that's already happening. <laughs> and so 
we already have climate refugees. You know, there's another intersection of war and climate. Look at Syria. A lot of the things that really kicked off with that war were due to climate change. So I think it's important that we not talk about climate change like it's the thing that will happen later in our lives or like when our grandparents are dead or whatever. It's happening. It's happening now. And it's already too late to address it in a, in a sort of like comfortable way. That happened like 50 years ago. So we really, at this point, we have to address it in a really stark and kind of warlike way. We really do have to be, as some people put it, climate warriors at this point. And I think that with regards to the glacier, which by the way, is the size of Florida, I think like people also don't understand how large these glaciers are. They're like, oh, a little piece of ice broke off. No, Florida broke off. He, like imagine Florida just, just chucked away at, it's gone. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. The program will continue after this brief musical break. Stay with us. right of you to point out the context in terms of the size of these things. I mean, because I think and because the way in which corporate media do cover these things, because we can't say they don't cover them. It's how they cover them or how there's a lack of consistency, a lack of connected dots. You know, even you have when you have major climate conventions and things going on, where people are scrambling about to look busy and not really come to any actionable things to, to reasonably do to curtail what's already afoot and what's already, what's already happening. You'd think that because there are stories, you know, just this year in the latest State of the Free Press 2022, Project Censored's new book, there are seven of the top 25 stories that are about in the environment, about the climate crisis. And by the way, they're not all negative. Some of them are about solutions and about groups that are doing things about the current climate crisis. And just really quickly, by the way, you can find all these online at, for free at projectcensored.org. Just in, in the top stories this past year, climate debtor nations have colonized the atmosphere. So that's, a very, that's an interesting story about the connections of capitalist nations, industrial nations, etc., and how they're, how they're controlling carbon emission and using it to economically hurt other countries. There's another story on microplastics and toxic chemicals that are increasingly prevalent in world's oceans. We're now finding toxic chemicals and particles and things that are in things like rugs or carpets and things like that. We're now finding like nanoparticles of these things in the Arctic. They're all around the globe. I mean, no one's laying carpet down there. These things are all over the place. And so, uh, you know, a couple of the others, and again, I'm just going to keep going down the list very quickly. Here's a good news story. Seed sovereignty movements challenge corporate monopolies. 
But again, another story, grave threats to Amazon rainforest from domestic industries and global capital. doesn't seem like we can get away from that capital, the investments, the capitalism seems to be on the backdrop here driving a lot of the environmental crisis. U.S. factory farming, a breeding ground for the next pandemic. You'd think that might catch somebody's attention in the headlines somewhere. And again, I, like I'm saying, nearly a third of the top stories this past year were about the climate. So it isn't that independent alternative journalists aren't and outlets aren't trying to cover these stories. It's that they can't seem to break through the noise of corporate media propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's a there's a great reason for that. You know, that's uh, it threatens, like you mentioned, the, the capital. It threatens the very foundation of this system, which is to protect the bottom line. And our bottom line in this country, well, really around the globe is heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Even when you consider the fact that those fossil fuels are subsidized to the hilt by these countries, it's become a part of an identity, a national identity. I was just thinking when you were talking about how corporate media, it's kind of like lying through omission, like a, a weather person, for instance, that talks about, oh, this is some crazy rain we're having. And oh, this hurricane is really bizarre, but then never talks about why it's bizarre. Like, oh, it's just, you know, oops, just happened to, you know, a hurricane just happened to be going the opposite direction. That's never happened before. But th then they don't make, right. They, they never, they, it's, it's like, it's like a, a one in a, it's a, it's a every hundred year uh, rain event. And you're like, but then it's not, if it happens every year, it's no longer that. And so the way that these things are talked about, which is what, why things like project censored and, and the push to really highlight media literacy is so important because it's the way these subjects are talked about. They're framed where you're basically told not to worry about it. Oh, it's just really raining and your life might flood. But look, it has nothing to do with climate change. It's just a freak accident. Go back to your, you know, go back to your job. Go back to not paying attention. It's framed like that on purpose. Yeah, it is. And Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting actually did a, did a study on that very issue in, in terms of the way corporate media and meteorologists and so on tend to discuss those things in ways that is completely disconnected from the cause. It is completely disconnected from the cause because then they're going to cut the commercial and the cause is going to be advertising things to you. It is, you know, and, and we'll certainly be coming back to this issue. We certainly have more to say on the matter. And I think we also should be mindful of listening to and following a lot of the young people. There's a lot of young people that are leaders in climate justice movements. And it stands to reason given how much they have to lose we all have things to lose, and the animals and all the living things on the planet. But I think that, that if we're really going to turn, turn the tide on this, for a bad pun, I think that we really need to listen to some of the younger people, and we need to really take these things more seriously and really put ourselves in the place of what it's like to be, you know, 5, 10, 15 years old right now growing up in the world. And not to say that other generations growing up didn't have their own challenges and so forth, but the one that you and I are just discussing right now is truly existential, and not in the abstract sense. It's mean, meaning these are real. Will we be here? And if so, how? And George Carlin once cynically quipped that we shouldn't worry about it because the earth will just spit us out like so much, you know, so much rubbish and gradually repair itself. You know, the other thing we didn't get into today, Eleanor, real quick, maybe you can say something about greenwashing. 
because a lot of these companies that are causing a lot of these problems dedicate 5 to 10% of what they do to looking like they're doing something and spend way more money on advertising talking about how look at us do something. The whole issue with electric cars and things, what's hidden behind all that is how much fossil fuel and how much pollution goes on and is required in order to extract these things that make the electric cars go. So you can be a good little consumer and you can have your toys and feel good about yourself while you're recycling your Starbucks cup that is probably going to end up in a landfill anyway. Hats off to Michael Moore. Right. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I mean, again, you just mentioned we have the ability to mobilize and to change and to do things, but the political will seems to be absent. Right. And I think it's important too to, I mean, just like lithium batteries for electrical cars, they're going to start dredging the deep ocean for lithium. We haven't even found species that exist down there. And we have no idea the kind of damage that would be done by dredging the deep ocean. And yet we're like, but dude, need some lithium. So the idea that it is somehow totally green to be driving around in a Tesla or whatever is absurd and it's wrong. And I, and I think it's important also, I'm not trying to shame people who buy electric cars thinking I'm doing better. I think it's just important to recognize that you cannot consume your way out of climate crisis. There is no such thing as green capitalism. And I think it's important that instead of focusing on personal choices, I oftentimes talk about it like, hey, when you go to the bathroom, do you wipe yourself? Great, you should, but I'm not going to like take time out of my day to congratulate you for that. It's the same thing with doing what you can for the environment, like don't buy a Hummer don't fly in a private jet if you even have that capability or or what have you. Don't be wasteful, but I'm not going to take time to congratulate you for it. It's just something you should be doing as we live in this moment. I think what we really need to be focusing on are things like the fact that a hundred companies are responsible for 70% of all global emissions. I think you cannot reusable straw your way out of that situation. And I think that that's really important to highlight that it's not the personal choices that are going to make the difference. It's mobilizing on a larger scale. And as the Defend Atlanta Forest folks have shown us, it's doing what you can where you can. If it's defending a little piece of green space, if it's fending a space against fracking, against mining or what have you, that is important and that is valid. And trying to do more on a systemic level rather than saying, I'm just going to go buy a tote bag and then my job as an activist is done. Indeed. And just to end on this note, one that story I mentioned earlier, the climate debtor nations have colonized the atmosphere. Sarah Lazare, a great journalist at In These Times, did this report, and it's number four in the book this year. You can see it online, projectcensored.org for free. Talks about a Lancet study by Jason Hickel, an economic anthropologist who found that the world's richest, most industrialized nations, including the United States, Canada, members of the European Union, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, are responsible for 92% of carbon dioxide emissions, and the global south is responsible for only 8%. So, again, as Utah Phillips once quipped, the, the earth isn't dying, it's being killed, and the people doing it have names and addresses. So I think that that's where we need, that's where we need to start, and that's where we need to continue moving forward. And we need an independent, truly free press and intrepid journalists helping get the word out and talk about these important stories and hear it from the voices of people that are already most deeply impacted by the climate crisis and the climate refugees that you spoke of earlier, Eleanor. We have a lot of work to do. So 
at any rate, always good to talk with you. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield on the Project Censored show, and we'll be back next time. We want to smash, crash, mash, mash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear, we ain't scared, this is the vision. We and that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff, executive producer and host of the program. Our co-host is Eleanor Goldfield, and Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer and man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find any of our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in, and thanks for welcoming our new co-host, Eleanor Goldfield. Political ties, habitualized alibis, skies, another guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why attacks on all the prisons and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. In the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers and us.